Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me. Today, I have another very special guest with me, and I pronounced her name pretty well, just off air, so I'm going to see if I can do it again. It's Dr. Linda Zegzebski, and um, she's, she's awesome. She's a beast. If you know anything about theology, philosophy, you have heard of her omnisubjectivity, and uh, we're going to be talking about that today. But for those who don't know Dr. Zegzebski, she is a George Lynn Cross Research Professor, as well as Kingfisher College Chair of the Philosophy of Religion and Ethics at the University of Oklahoma. And she writes in epistemology, philosophy of religion, virtue theory, and all sorts of other stuff. So it's, it's fantastic. She is great. I'm really excited to talk with her today. And uh, again, we're going to be talking about omnisubjectivity. Uh, if you don't know what that is, then stay tuned, and you will by the end of this episode. And we're going to be talking about God and his knowledge and omniscience, and it's going to be great. But before we jump in, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. If this is one of your favorite podcasts, please consider becoming a Patreon patron, a supporter of the podcast. You can find a link in the description. And you can find a bunch of different ways to give, a bunch of different options to give uh, over there on Patreon and different gifts that come with it. So you can get a sticker or a mug or a shirt. Um, So please go check those out and consider becoming a Patreon patron. Another way to support me is by checking out my sponsors over at Biblios Clothing Company. And for a limited time, if you go there like today, click the link in the description, you can get 10% off your entire order. Biblios Clothing Company is, they're awesome. They're friends of mine. They have really cool designs. It's a Christian company. And uh, we got to support, you know, small small Christian companies like this. But they make it easy to support because they come out with really, really cool stuff. So check the link in the description. It's biblioscloting.com slash discount slash Parker. And Parker's in all caps. And you can get 10% off your entire order today. So please go check that out. All right. So without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Linda Zegzebski. And we're going to be talking about... God and whether or not he has omni-subjectivity. Dr. Zebzeski, I ruined it. I had it going. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you. Well, I'm excited to talk too. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is a big word, omni-subjectivity. Before we jump in though, uh, I I was just curious, how did you get into philosophy and theology yourself? Well, That's a hard question to answer because I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in philosophy and theology. Hmm. Of course, when I was a kid, I didn't call it by those names. But, you know, children always ask philosophical questions. Where did I come from? Where did the universe come from? What happens after I die? What makes people happy? Why why are people, why are some people bad? You know, there's all these questions. And, um, you know, I think philosophers are just people that never stop at, uh, asking them, mm-hmm. and they just, you know, change the answers over time. Um, and theology, well, I mean, it's, I was always, a, a you know, a, a Christian believer, and so those 
the religious aspects of philosophy always were important to me. Mm. Um, I went to a, a Catholic high school where, and this is way back, of course, and in those days, um, they sometimes would teach uh, Aquinas's arguments for the existence of God in ninth grade. And wow. so I did, you know, so I was able to start it um, before college. Um, but I don't really have any particular answer to your question about being a professional because most people kind of stumble into a profession. They don't know if they're going to be good at it or successful mm -hmm. at it. They just start it and see what happens. And I guess that's what I did. All right. Um, so you said you went to a Catholic high school. Uh, were you Catholic yourself growing up? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And you remain uh, in the Catholic tradition? Today? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and so then you had theology and philosophy on your mind, seems like, you know, forever. Why, how'd you pick philosophy over theology? Why'd you go into philosophy instead of, uh, you know, specializing in theology? Well, uh, that also could be partly historical accident or, you know, I'm not sure how to exactly to answer that, but um, um, I went to, to Stanford as an undergraduate and um, Berkeley and UCLA for graduate school. Those are all, of course, secular universities. The people I talked to, the people I was studying with were either, you know, they, many of them not Christian, maybe most of them not Christian, some not even theists. Um, but I like the idea of being able to um, engage in philosophical discussion with people who may not have the same religious beliefs I have. Sure. And, uh, you know, so it just evolved, I guess you could say. I like the idea and still like the idea of being able to write. You know, some of my work is for Christians, but a lot of it is not. It's not right. for, particularly for Christians. And I like that because I just have lots and lots of connections outside of um you know, the Christian academic world. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, can you just fill us in? What did you do your PhD work on? My PhD work, <laughs> well, you'll probably be surprised, but it was in philosophy of language. And okay. I wrote a dissertation on natural kind terms. Oh, wow. Um, terms for kinds like water and gold and human being. And, and so I gave a semantical analysis of them and, uh, tried to trace out some metaphysical implications of the semantics. Um, so that was something that I dropped until a long time later when I developed this moral theory that I call exemplarist moral theory. Hmm. And it's based on direct reference to exemplars of goodness. And the whole idea of direct reference comes out of that work in the 70s on natural kinds. Okay. So there, you know, I kind of went back to it in a way much later. That's really cool. Um, so I'm sure you probably have had your fill of Putnam and content externalism and twin water and stuff right. like that. Twin water. Yeah. <laughs> twin earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Twin water. Yeah, twin earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really cool. So I, I, I've gotten into it a little bit just studying um, some Donald Davidson and his triangulation mm -hmm. argument and fixing concepts just real quick, did did you have a? Do you come down on uh, content externalism or internalism or anything like that? Um, yeah, I was. I mean, it was, it's an externalist theory. Okay. Um, but but I, as I said, I kind of um, 
dropped it for decades, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't consider myself a philosopher of language anymore, but I do okay. have used direct reference in this moral theory. Cool. So that's, you know, that's where I used it in later years. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, so then, um, so you got into, you you got in cutting your teeth on philosophy of language and then uh, you've done work in epistemology and philosophy of religion. And how would you, um, how did you end up getting into like what we call in, in theology circles, analytic theology? I know some people say, uh, I've heard some people say, you know, you have to get tenure first and then you can start writing about theolo- theological questions again. Did you have any of that in your mind or did you say, look, I'm, I'm interested in what I'm interested in? I'm interested in whatever I'm interested in. And that's, yeah. I'll just see what happens, you know? Uh, but um, I mean, the term analytic theology wasn't, around for Mm -hmm. most of my career. So it wasn't like I said, oh, I think I'll be, you know, I think I'll do analytic theology now. I didn't do that. It just, I just wrote what I write. And then Mm -hmm. some people called it analytic theology or analytic philosophy applied to Christian uh, ideas. Or, I mean, I don't know what they call it. I don't really care what they call it, but um, yeah, I can see why people would consider me in the category of, of an analytic theologian as well as a philosopher. Okay. All right. Well, so so we're going to be talking about omnisubjectivity today. And uh, I just want to start off with a quick conversation about omniscience, because that, that does do a lot of the motivating work here. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the views? So you you argue that if God's omniscient, then he he must have or, or he must be omnisubjective or have mm-hmm. omnisubjectivity. Um, what are some of the other views of omniscience, like on offer, that would exclude or deny that that God has uh, omnisubjectivity? Okay, that's good. So maybe I should first define what I mean by yeah. omnisubjectivity. Sure, please. So I say that omnisubjectivity is the property or the attribute of having a complete and perfect grasp of the subjective states of all beings. Uh, who exist that have subjective states from their first person perspective. So that would mean grasping what it is like for you to feel an itch in your toe, you know, what it is like for um, apparently they're, they think now that octopuses can dream Mm -hmm. Uh, what it's like for an octopus to dream. You know, (laughs) so it would not only apply to human beings, but would apply to any creatures who have subjective states. And it's important to say that it's grasping these states, not just descriptively, the way you would if you are describing it in a propositional form, but grasping it as it is experienced by the being who has it. Um, So that's what I mean by omnisubjectivity. Now, what about omniscience? Um, you, there's more than one way, of course, to define omniscience. Sure. A very common way is to say omniscience is the property of knowing the truth value of all propositions. So for every proposition, um, an omniscient God would know whether it's true or false. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the idea that an omniscient being must be omnisubjective um, could be criticized by people who say that if God knows the truth value of all propositions, it doesn't matter if he knows what it's like for you to have an itch in your toe. Mm -hmm. 
Right. God would know the proposition Parker has an itch in his toe, and that's good enough mm -hmm. to be omniscient. He knows the truth value of that proposition. Um, but it seems to me that God would be lacking something if he didn't grasp what it's like for you to feel the itch. Mm -hmm. What he would like would lack is cognitive. So either you ha have to say that God would not be omniscient because an omniscient being should know what it's like for you to feel the itch. Alternatively, you could say, okay, it's not knowledge that he lacks, but he still lacks cognitive perfection. Yeah. Because a cognitively perfect being should not only know the truth value of all propositions, but should know what the world is like to beings in his created world, in his created universe. So, um, my basic line is that it doesn't matter how you define omniscience okay. um, because either omniscience entails omnisubjectivity because God would lack knowledge of some kind if he didn't know what it's like uh, for an octopus to dream or for you to feel an itch. Um, if he does have knowledge, he would lack a grasp of what it's like for you to feel the itch and a cognitively perfect being should grasp that. Yeah. So it's not, it doesn't help to me. It doesn't help to define omniscience in a way that excludes the grasp of subjective states, because that still would indicate a lack of something in God. If yeah. he doesn't grasp those states. Yeah. Uh, so we've read your your paper, or at least I know you have a couple on omnisubjectivity, but I think maybe the first one we've read that in several of my classes at TEDS, and people oh. would people would bring up. So yeah, we we love you, at TEDS. People bring up, um, well, look, omniscience or omni, yeah, omniscience is just God knows everything that there is, you know, possibly to know, and there's a privacy of of uh, individual thoughts such that it's just it would be like contradictory, and so. Um, they, they want they, it's an attempt I think to redefine omniscience uh, maybe like George Mavrodes does with uh, omnipotence and just saying like hey we need a better definition and it should preclude these but every time we've had this conversation I've I've been convinced by you that there are subjective states are when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply things that we can know and if i know them and god doesn't then i know something god doesn't know does that does that sound right 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 i mean it, it, again i don't think it's important to put too much emphasis on the word no okay because it's a cognitive grasp of a certain kind that i say a cognitively perfect being must have mm -hmm. that a cognitively perfect being must grasp subjective states as they are understood or grasped by the beings who have them. Mm -hmm. Now you could say, oh, but that's not actually knowledge. Knowledge only applies to propositions. Okay, you can do that if you want. But you, you, to me, all you've done is required us to reformulate the problem 
in terms of cognitive perfection yeah. rather than omniscience. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I, I talk about knowledge because I think that's the most natural way to uh, think about omnisubjectivity as knowledge of subjective states. But again, I just want to repeat that it's really not a quibble. I mean, I don't think we should quibble about the meaning of the word no. Okay. It's about cognitive grasp. Yeah. Whether that's broader than knowledge or whatever you want to call it, it's something God should have. Yeah, and and it seems to me like <clears throat> cognitive perfection just God has to have that. Um, is that like a is it a great making property or is that like do you do you need do we need to argue for that or is it just intuitive that if He's God, then He has uh, cognitive perfection? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, I think that. Um, any intuition that would tell you that God is omniscient would be the same intuition that would tell you that God is cognitively perfect. That's good. Yeah. So you don't really need an extra argument. Okay. Um, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really good. Well, so um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about subjective states. And uh, yeah, I know you mm-hmm. know, you use uh, Frank Jackson's Mary. Yeah, uh, that's a good good example. Yeah, yes. can, you, can you lay that, that uh, I don't know, is it an intuition pump? How, what, what do you call that scenario? Well, I don't know. Call it what you want. <laughs> I'll describe it and then you can Please. decide what you want to say about it. Sure. <clears throat> so in the original story, we imagine that Mary is, uh, has spent her entire life in a black and white room. She's never seen any colored object. She has had all her education through black and white videos and books. Um, And we're also supposed to believe, for the point of Jackson's argument, that she knows everything there is to know about the physical world. So she knows all physical facts, including physical facts about uh, color and color perception, She's just never experienced seeing color. Mm -hmm. So you could say Mary's the ultimate genius. You know, she knows all the physical facts, but she's never seen color. Now we imagine that Mary leaves her black and white room and sees in color for the first time. And in that paper, Jackson said she finds out something she didn't know before. She finds out what it is like to see color. But, of course, she already knew all the physical facts about color exhaustively, we imagine. Mm -hmm. So that means there's something to know that isn't captured by propositions about the physical world. And so physicalism must be false. Now, Jackson changed his mind about that conclusion later. Yeah. His change of mind has no bearing on what I'm doing with the thought experiment. Okay. Um, so, um, my, the way I use the story is to use it to illustrate the idea that when Mary leaves her black and white room, it doesn't matter if you say she comes to know something she didn't know before. She's simply in a different subjective state. She no doubt would exclaim about that herself when she leaves the room and sees red for the first time, she'd say, wow, look at that. You know, she's in a different subjective state. Mm -hmm. Nobody denies that. As far as I know, she is in a different subjective state. So my point is that 
don't worry about what you call knowledge. Think about the fact that she was previously in one subjective state and now she's in another one Mm -hmm. and she can tell the difference. If she could tell the difference, God should be able to tell the difference. Yeah. So God should be able to tell the difference between Mary's previous state, subjective state, and her later sub pre, uh, her later subjective state. Yeah. And how whatever you describe that, <clears throat> you know, God knows something you didn't know before. You can say that if you want. Doesn't matter what you call it. God must be able to distinguish them, and that's why I'm saying He must have the grasp of people's subjective states as they experience them themselves. Yeah, that's such a good move that you did there, too, because I know, uh, yeah, I know Frank uh, Jackson has pulled back from that. And some people say Mary didn't gain new knowledge, but she just gained a new concept or if concepts are abilities. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, your 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 line about um, cognitive perfection captures all of that. So whether it's a new concept, yeah, so the, whether it's new knowledge, yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't matter what she she gains. You can call it new knowledge and a concept, as you say, whatever it is, something's different. Yeah. And so whatever that is, she can tell. And so I say, then God should be able to tell too. Yeah, that's, that's, that's gold. I really like that. So, so we have a motivation <laughs> for uh, omnisubjectivity from omniscience, but you also have mentioned that uh, omnipresence and maybe love and justice also uh, lead us to, to come, or come to or ought to affirm yes. subjectivity. Can, yes. you, can you lay that out for us? Sure. So um, I'm writing a book on omnisubjectivity now. So I've been thinking about this more. And um, I argue that omniscience entails omnisubjectivity and omnipresence entails uh, omnisubjectivity. Uh, I also argue that practices of prayer um, imply that we believe God to be omnisubjective. Mm. So if God isn't omnisubjective, we'd have to rethink the way we pray. Uh, And then I argue that it might not actually be entailed by God's love and justice, but strongly implied by the way we would think of God's love and justice. So I already mentioned um, omniscience. So let's talk about omnipresence. Mm -hmm. So omnipresence is um, the attribute of being everywhere. Now that's fairly easy to say, but people of course immediately um, ask the question, how can a God who's not in space yeah. and has no body be in space? Everywhere sounds like it means in space, like in every part of space. Well, um, my favorite answer to this is actually Anselm's answer mm-hmm. where um, in the 11th century, where he says, when we say God is everywhere, um, we, we mean that God is present to every part of creation. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean God is in space the way a cup is in a cupboard, but God is present to every being, every event that occurs in space or space and time. Um, but since God is present to everything in its creation, that wouldn't be limited to events or beings that are spatial. It would also apply to the non, um, non-physical part of his creation. So mm-hmm. if God can be present um, to an event in space, God can also be present to something going on in your mind, yeah. right? So if you think that what's going on in your mind is non-spatial, it's no problem. 
God, to be omnipresent just means to be present to every part of creation, whether it's in space or not. Yeah. So that's why I think that because the puzzle of how an omnipresent God can be present to, uh, when God is not himself spatial, the answer to that puzzle applies to everything in creation. So whatever you say that would make sense about how a non-spatial God could be present in your room, um, this answer to that question would also apply to how a non-spatial God can be present in your mind Hmm. and your thoughts and your feelings. So omnipresence has to be uh, interpreted in a way that doesn't tie God to space. And once you see that, you realize that God is tied to everything in creation, whether or not it's in space. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Uh, And that captures if you wanted to be a Christian physicalist or a substance dualist or whatever the case, God is uh, whatever the case turns out to be true, which I I go in for dualism myself, but God is present to you. Yeah. Yes, I think that the problem of omnipresence is is really the problem of how a transcendent God can also be imminent in the creation. Yeah. And the issue about space is just a particular version of that larger problem of how God can be both transcendent and imminent. And that applies not just to how God can be in space, but how God can be in time. God might be outside of time and still in some sense be in time, you know, in events in time. Um, So I think that the omnipresence issue is just a general or or a particular uh, version of the of the deeper problem of how transcendence and imminence can both apply to God. Okay, that's a that's a really good point. And I'm I'm tempted to jump ahead here uh, because you, you do talk about. Uh, reading a book and taking on the feelings of a character. And that's something that gets me really excited thinking about uh, the authority. Yeah. Analogy. Okay. That's yeah. about the empathy analogy. Well, yeah. um, do you want me to um, also say briefly uh, what the other arguments for omnisubjectivity for yeah. prayer, prayer, yeah. injustice and love. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please let's go over. Um, so, so um, it seems to me that when people pray, they assume that God hears them. Mm-hmm. And, um, or at least hope that God hears them. The point of the prayer is to address God as you, you know, address God as a person who hears them. And um, I think we also think that even though we often pray out loud, as in public liturgies, we also pray with, you know, to ourselves without saying anything out loud. We might not even pray in words, There might be images, you know, meditative images of the passion or something of that sort. Hmm. Um, There might not even be images because in advanced stages of meditation and contemplation, um, the images disappear and then the person uh, feels in the presence of God without words, without images. Um, That certainly implies that God is somehow in your head with you when you're in that state. Hmm. Um, And uh, what I want to say is that doesn't, the practices of prayer might not actually entail the full 
um, attribute of omnisubjectivity because there are many creatures who don't pray. Yeah. I mean, your dog probably doesn't pray, Mm -hmm. but um, my point then is if we think that God must be in the head of the person who's praying, it's but a small step to say that God must be in the head of beings who don't pray. But, um, you know, there's, there would, I guess what I want to say is there's no reason to say God would stop the omnisubjectivity only with humans and yeah. not go so far as other animals. So that the practices of prayer imply that God is at least um, uh, what I might call omni homo subjectivity, you know, yeah, sub, sure. you know, but that's, you know, if you, if you go that far, it's but a small step to saying that God has the full attribute of omnisubjectivity. Hmm. So um, that's that argument. And then the argument of lots of scripture passages that suggest that God judges us um, for what's hidden in our hearts, not mm-hmm. just for overt acts and so on. And um, that and love, I mean, love is an interesting one because, of course, there's different forms of love, but I think that we probably think that the deepest kind of love requires the a full the fullest knowledge of the person loved. So you first know the person and then love the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the fuller the knowledge, the the fuller the possibility for loving that person. So if we think God loves us, and of course we do, we would want to think that God knows us completely. Yeah. Um, and all, you know, everything about us. Um, we wouldn't want to be, you know, afraid that if God finds out this one little thing about me, he's not going to love me anymore. You know, right. so <clears throat> it would seem like, um, you know, maybe God's justice and God's love does not actually, um, you know, fully and require on me subjectivity, but strongly implies it, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And and just thinking about um, if, if he didn't have knowledge of my subjective states in this omnisubjective way, then I could say, well, you don't know what it was like. You don't know what this temptation was like for me, God. You don't, mm-hmm. you, how, how could you judge me? You, you can't be the perfect judge. You don't know what it was right. like. You don't know the right. pressure and how it felt for me, but he can say, mm-hmm. absolutely. I do. I'm omnisubjective. I'm, Omnisubjective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Okay. I, I like those. I like those. Um, okay. So, so we have uh, some arguments for why we we might think that God is omnisubjective, or even stronger that we we should affirm that. So now, we, uh, getting into the, I don't know a better word for it, the the mechanism by which he knows that. But yeah. It's right. Not quite right. mechanistic, right? But right. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, um, in the book I'm writing, the first chapter is just on subjectivity and what it is. Mm -hmm. Second chapter is on arguments for omnisubjectivity that I've, you know, outlined for you. And the third chapter is how can God be omnisubjective? Mm -hmm. Like, how is it possible to do it? Yeah. Um, and I think the, a short way to put the problem would be this. How can God be in your head without being you? Mm-hmm. I mean, you might think that's just incoherent. It's impossible. Um, if if omnisubjectivity is impossible, well, 
then that I think that means omniscience is impossible. Omnipresence is impossible. Our prayers don't make sense. You know, there's lots of problems that would uh, arise from that if that is the case. Um, so I actually outline three models of how God could be omnisubjective. Um, only the first one is one that I previously published, and that's the empathy model that you alluded to a minute ago. Okay. So the empathy model goes something like this. Um, start with human empathy as your, you know, as your model. Think about how human beings can, in a sense, enter into the psychic states, the subject, subjective states of other people uh, empathically, like you sort of take on their, their feeling yourself. Yeah. So if someone is grieving over the death of a parent, you can kind of, you know, take on what they're feeling. You sort of um, can get what it's like to be in their shoes, you mm -hmm. know, and what it's like to be going through what they're going through and what they are feeling. Of course, we don't do a real good job of that, but we can we can kind of do it up to a point. And yeah. I think we do it successfully up to a point. Yeah. Um, and we think of empathy um, I mean, the term empathy is usually only used for taking on someone else's feelings or emotions. But we do, do the same thing for other subjective states of people. You know, you can you talk to someone, they may not be going through any big feeling, but they they have a certain attitude or point of view and they having to do with their personal history that leads them to have maybe a certain political view. You talk to them, you sort of get where they're coming from. You see how they're looking at the world. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of thing I mean. You, you can kind of see what it's like to be them. Um, uh, and you can do that even for states that are not emotional or not feeling states. You can okay. see why they believe what they believe. You can see why they decide what they decide, why they feel what they feel, why their attitudes are certain, you know, why they have certain points of view and certain attitudes. You can kind of get that. Okay. And so that I try to use that model and imagine it being done perfectly for all subjective states of all beings who have subjective states and use that as a model of what omnisubjectivity would be. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, I use the example of reading a novel or watching a movie to help pump this intuition. So when you watch a movie, if the, if the movie's well done and the actor's really good, you can kind of, you know, get into the mind of the character, right? I mean, yeah. you can kind of, you know, you sort of take on in your imagination what it would be like to be that character, whether the character is a real one or a fictional one in a movie. Um, and that experience, I think, gives us a kind of a hint as to what omnisubjectivity would be for God. God would, you know, perfectly empathize with every single subjective state anybody's ever had. Mm -hmm. um, that's how that model would go. It's there's defects of the model. Um the model breaks down in certain ways because in, hu in the human case, when you empathize with somebody, you have to use your own past experience 
yeah. to kind of help yourself imagine right. what it's like to be them. Um, God doesn't have to use any past experience to, you know, that won't work. Right. Um, it has to be something more direct where God is sort of directly grasping the person's state, not sort of imaginatively projecting from his past experience. I mean, that can't be the way it would work. Right. So the model doesn't work perfectly, but it's meant to be a kind of a, um, you know, a suggestion of how to think about it. Yeah. So that's one of the models. Okay. Do you real, want to real, ask anything yeah. about that? Yeah, okay. just real quick. So uh, I, I listened in uh, on your conversation or your, your interview with uh, Jordan Stefaniak on the uh, – uh, London Lyceum, and it was great. Jordan's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Love that dude. But oh, okay. um, he had mentioned about the popular in, – in, in certain Christian circles, there's kind of a war against empathy right now. And some people are saying uh, – I, I, Jordan had mentioned how some people think it's it's sinful. Other people uh, have charged the, the whole term of being a, a modern term that is is like a bastardization of sympathy. Um, and I don't know. Maybe people – everyone's crazy. But I know someone listening will say – Something about empathy and how it's a modern term. Do you have a, a, a hard and fast distinction between sympathy and empathy, or are they both kind of catching the same type of thing? Oh, okay. No, I think symp- sympathy and empathy are two different things. Okay. But I don't understand what would be wrong with empathy being a modern term. I don't know. People are crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I don't. I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, I. I, I mean, the way I define empathy, it's much broader than the way the term is usually used because okay. it applies not, not just to feelings, but to yeah. feeling states, but to any state, you know, uh, as I said a minute ago. So yeah. what's the difference between empathy and sympathy? Well, I think of empathy as actually feeling with the other person, like you're kind of in their head, mm-hmm. sort of, or you try to be in their head, sort of getting how they're feeling when they feel grief or a pain or even happiness and joy. I mean, you can empathize with good states as well as painful states. Um, sympathy is completely different. I mean, sympathy, you don't necessarily feel what anybody else is feeling mm-hmm. or even try to feel what anybody else is feeling when you sympathize with them. I think of sympathy as, as having a kind of a pro, let's see what would the word would be, kind of like what Hume says. It's sort of a, you have a general sense of fellow feeling. These are people like me. I have an, a kind of a positive attitude towards them. I want to see them succeed. I want to see them happy. I want, you know, you have a kind of a good feeling towards people. Yeah. Um, and you usually have that feeling because you see yourselves as being somehow connected. Um, you know, we're all in the same boat. We're all living in the same world. We all have to face the same troubles. So it's a kind of a... Um, just a general positive attitude, pro attitude towards other people. Um, that I think is quite different than actually empathizing with them. Okay, so would would you say empathy is is empathy a pro attitude as well, or or something deeper? No, it's not. No, not really. I mean, it's okay. a, it's a. Uh, I mean, you probably would have to have a pro attitude to even try to empathize. Okay. I mean, you wouldn't if you're talking to a person. And they're going through some painful period of their life. You might not even bother to talk to them or to try to empathize unless you kind of liked them. You know, yeah. you have to have some. So, um, yeah, but I don't think empathy itself is a is the pro attitude. It's actually kind of um, it's 
it's it's showing them that you can understand them in a deep way. Yeah. You can kind of get what they're going through and as close to a way as, as is possible without being them. Okay. You know, as, as, as deep and as complete a way as it's possible to grasp another person without being them. Yeah. And of course, as I say, this is kind of idealistic. We don't do a real great job of it, but we try. Okay. So uh, one more follow up on empathy. I, I brought this, I brought your uh, term omnisubjectivity up uh, to one of the football players that I disciple. I work with a, a campus ministry for athletes and uh, I was reading your paper and he asked me what I'm reading. So I brought it up to him and he said, oh, is that like how I know what it would be like to lick this wall right here without licking it? And I, it was crazy. It blew my mind. Um, and, and, and he was talking about, you know, you can imagine the yes, tactile yes. feeling of, of licking. I, I can look all around my office and I never have licked these things, but I think I know pretty well what it'd be like if I were a perfect being with, uh, you know, uh, co- uh, this cognitive perfection. Yeah, I could imagine what it'd be like. And it wouldn't just be the imagine in a weak sense, I mean, but in a stronger sense. Is that something different than the empathy route or is that um, does that seem like a similar thing? I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question because God, I mean, if you know what it's like to lick a wall without doing it, you probably uh, know that because you're putting together past experiences of of licking things. (laughs) And um, let's see, how would you know what the well tastes like? I'm not Uh, sure, but you might. I mean, you're putting together some things and then you can kind of figure out what it would be like. Um, um, and I don't think God would do, would know what it's like for a human being to do what we do by sort of putting together, uh, pieces of God's past experience or something like that. So that wouldn't work. But, but I mean, I, I, I see what, what your friend was saying. Um, this raises a question that is maybe going off the track that we might want to go back to later, but, um, I am writing a chapter that raises the question of possible but non-actual subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So suppose you never in your life lick a wall, mm-hmm. okay? Would God know what it would be like for you to lick a wall? Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, if yeah, well – there isn't any actual subjective state for God to grasp. He would yeah. be grasping a possible subjective state for you. Yeah. Okay. Now, I defined omnisubjectivity in a way that didn't say anything about possible states, only actual states. Mm-hmm. So God knows what it's like to be you in all your subjective states your whole life. And the same with every other creature. But the definition didn't say anything about subjective states that will never happen. Yeah. Um, Omnisubjectivity could be defined as including knowledge of what it would be like for any possible uh, creature to have any possible subjective state for that creature. Mm -hmm. Um, You could do that. I mean, I think there's reasons why we might want to define it that way, in which case we would say that God would know um, what it would be like for you to um, lick the wall. God would know 
what it would be like for you to take a trip to Antarctica. I'm assuming you never will, but you know, just take something you'll never do. Yeah. Um, God would know all of those things. Um, but that's actually going off the track a little bit to another issue. And if you want to bring that up again later, I'd be happy to say what yeah. I think about it. Cause I actually haven't made up that issue. Yeah. Well, and that's, it's definitely interesting. Cause a lot, uh, again, a lot of my listeners uh, will be familiar with Molinism or will be Molinists themselves and mm-hmm. will have in mind the, counterfactuals of creaturely freedom and i think this if if you were a molinist it seems like god would have to take these types of things into account mm-hmm. when he's picking out the world that he wants to right. actualize yeah. okay so um i did say that i have three models for how mm-hmm. god is omnisubject uh, omnisubjective so the empathy model is the first one yep. um the second one is a model of direct perception a perceptual model okay um this one, um, I'm not sure what to say about it. It has advantages and disadvantages over the empathy model. Um, the perceptual model has the advantage of making it look like, you know, God sort of peers into your head yeah, and sort of, sees your fear or your pain or your hope or whatever it is. Um, The problem is, the problem with the perceptual model is that in our vocabulary and the way we think of human perceptual states, there's always a separation between the subject of the perception and the object. So God is always separate from you, peering in, so to speak. And you can say, well, God would have to be very close to you to see your fear. Okay, but God isn't actually in the fear. God is still separate, close, but still separate. And so that makes it look like it's not really, it still makes it look like your fear is an object to God rather than God knowing your fear as you, the subject, experiences it. It still seems to make a separation. Um, So I'm not sure what to say about the perceptual model, although some people like it, I think. Yeah. Um, The trouble, I mean, in a way, the empathy model has the same problem. I mean, when you empathize with somebody, there's still a separation between you and the person you're empathizing with. Right. So yeah. you could I be think, getting it wrong. Yeah, you could be yeah, trying well, to empathize I mean, and get the you, wrong you thing. You think too. like it's not really fully in it if you're separated from it. Right. So um, this is what I, you know, the, what I said a minute ago that the problem here for both these models could be put as the problem of how can God be in your feeling without being you? Mm-hmm. How can God be in your thought without being you? Um, how can God be in your decision without actually being you making the decision? You know, and, and so on. That, that, that we, as long as we think that your ego, if I may use that word, and God's ego are two different things, it may seem to be impossible for God to really grasp your world, your subjective world as you grasp it, because God will never be you. Right. Okay. So that leads to a third model, which is panentheism. Mm. 
Mm. And I don't know a lot about panentheism. I do know it's becoming popular. And um, I think there are reasons why people might, might want to be a panentheist without, you know, that have nothing to do with what I'm arguing about in, sure. in, in omnisubjectivity. But if you think of panentheism as the view that um, God transcends the world, but actually is part, the world is part of God. The created world is part of God. That's the way I understand panentheism. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole created world is a part or an aspect of God. If you think of um, the world that way and your subjective states on a panentheist model, then um, your subjective states actually are part of God. Yeah. There really isn't a separation between your feeling and God because God, your feeling is in God. Um, that to many people would seem to, um, well, it, blur, it violates the rule that you and God are two different things. Right. But um, the it violates that rule, but you might want to violate that rule if you want it to turn out that God really grasps what it's like to be you. Yeah. So this model has the problem of not being um, um, yeah. the problem of not being orthodox, I guess we could say. But it it um, it seems to make omnisubjectivity a little easier to explain, as long as you're willing to accept all the problems of panentheism. Yeah. Well, so so a question about the the panentheist model, and and I know you're not, um, you know, claiming to mm-hmm. be the panentheist, panentheist expert, but I still think there there might be like a unity of phenomenal consciousness problem where I have this uni- unified consciousness. It's different than yours, and so even if we both were in God, we have separate experiences, um, and so it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like adding my consciousness up with your consciousness. You know, if we if we were both uh, in a room and we had half of an equation, it, no one in the room the the room itself doesn't understand the the equation. Um, d- does that make sense? That that the problem of unity of phenomenal consciousness. Yeah, I don't know what to say because I, I mean I don't know what panentheists would yeah. say if they were going to sure. tack on to my theory. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, you could say that. Um, when you're thinking, your thinking is God's aware of your thinking because your thinking is part of God's consciousness. My thinking is also part of God's consciousness. It's sort of like God is very busy. He's doing a lot of thinking, you know. <laughs> yeah. So he has his own thinking and then he has your thinking and my thinking and everybody else's thinking and feeling. You know? Yeah. And so it's kind of like God is doing all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, if that even makes sense. And if, even if it does make sense, I don't know if it's acceptable, but I mean, there are things I've been reading the Hindu Upanishads, which I absolutely love. Hmm. Oh, just fabulous. But it has, it has these interesting ideas about how the self with a small S really is the same as the self with a capital S Atman, which is the same in everybody. So Hmm. there's this big 
self, you know, the, the Atman, which it is is the consciousness that's conscious that that's that who, the consciousness that is in you. So your consciousness is the self's consciousness sort of spread out into you. I don't yep. know if spread out is the right word, but it's kind of like there's this big consciousness that spreads out into you and me and all the other conscious beings. So what we're aware of is just this one part of the consciousness of the self or Atman. And um, it's, it does mean that yourself, as we think of it in Western thought, is not really a completely um, independent thing. Yeah. It's part of another bigger consciousness. Right. Like a node or, or something. Yeah. Like something yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. I know that uh, some panpsychist thinkers who go in for like a priority monism, like Philip Goff uh, and folks would have, have, have worked on something like that with universal yeah. consciousness and the, the perennial philosophy. And it's, it's super interesting. One, one uh, question that I think might be a problem for both the perceptual and uh, panentheism is uh, your your cognitive perfection uh, attribute. It seems like on those two models, maybe God is coming to know some things. He's learning things through the perceptual model or through you and I being part of, of us being part of him, that as we are experiencing those things, he's gaining knowledge. Does that seem, does that, is yeah, that a problem? I, yeah, I'm not sure what to say. It may be a problem for panentheism. I'm not sure it's a problem for the visual model. Okay. Because you can think of... Um, Think of the metaphor that Aquinas uses in explaining how a god outside of time can perceive or grasp all events in time. And you're supposed to imagine um, a person standing on top of a mountain, mm -hmm. looking down at the road below, at a, at a line of travelers on the road below. And the people on the road can only see just immediately in front of them. They can't see anything else. But the, the viewer on top of the mountain sees the entire road uh, with all the travelers on it at once, yeah. in one glance. Um, you could use that image for seeing what's going on in their heads, the heads of the people on the road all at once. You know, the, 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 the god on top of the mountain not only sees the travelers on the road below, but sees into the minds of all the travelers below. Yeah. Um, and so it could be that it's, you know, you'd have to imagine this happening all in one glance, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So it's vision that doesn't move. It's vision that's sort of one instantaneous grasp. Okay. Yeah. That, so, um, would that commit us to like a block universe, four dimensional type stuff? Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, I've argued, I argued way back in my first book, the divine foreknowledge book that it actually doesn't commit you to that, but oh, cool. I okay. don't, I don't really know what to say about that. Um, because, uh, well, I won't, I don't, I think sure. I'll just skip that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and, uh, so anyone with that question, go, go check out, yeah. um, earlier work. Dr. Zagzebski, Zeg, Zeg, what, what, if someone wanted to go find that earlier work, uh, do you, 
Oh, the book I was referring to is called The Dilemma of Freedom and Foreknowledge. Cool. Um, I published it in 91 with Oxford University Press. Okay. I have a lot of stuff on foreknowledge. I mean, my Stanford Encyclopedia article and a bunch of things. Um, uh, Although maybe the Stanford Encyclopedia article probably doesn't discuss models of time, but the book does. Okay. Yeah, and just another shout out to another friend. Uh, my friends over at the Free Will Show, and they had you on, and and oh yeah, yeah, some of that Free Will stuff. Great guys. Um, so everyone, go check that episode out as well. Um, with the per- direct perceptual model, I don't know why I'm thinking William Alston. Is that something Alston talked about, or am I just pulling that out of nowhere? Um. So did you did Alston think that God knows by perceiving? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, the the perceptual model. I, for whatever reason, it's it's in my head right now. But maybe I'm maybe that's just totally non sequitur. Well, I mean, I was using it as a model of omnisubjectivity, and and yeah. Bill Alston didn't, you know, wasn't talking about that. Okay. Um, um, I mean, I do recall. I don't know if this is what you're thinking of, but I do recall this paper that says God doesn't have beliefs because God doesn't, God's knowledge doesn't have discrete objects, you know, like yeah. propositional objects, individual beliefs. Mm-hmm. But of course, Aquinas said that too. Yeah. That God's knowledge is just one grasp. Um, I don't know if that's, that's not very clear to say one grasp, but it's like the, the object of God's grasp is not divided up into bits. Yeah, that's helpful. That you would express in sentences. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, well, I don't know. You can even think of analogies of that. Like if you walk into a room and you look around, or maybe you go outside. I, I look outside and I see mountains and trees and you know beautiful sights. Um, you sort of take it all in as yeah. one thing. Yeah. You don't say, oh, a tree with green leaves and another tree with, you know, you don't you don't think that it's just one. Um, yeah, it's like one, one object. Un- yeah. One <laughs> unified qualitative. Experience, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 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 That's great. OK, that that is really helpful. And I, I was going to I meant to ask you about um, whether, you know, God's thoughts are a current or um, whether he thinks discursively. But so, so that that's um, that's really helpful as well. I wonder if if we could bring up just a, a quick case study about uh, Chicago style hot dogs. Um, okay. So I'm 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 in Chicago land right now. Love a and good you like Chicago. Chicago style hot dogs. That's okay. right. Yeah, and this is how I, I teach my students as well. Um, but so on on um, these three models that you've that you've given, God would know. God knows what it's like to uh, for Parker to eat a Chicago style hot dog, and maybe even if I hadn't eaten one before, He knows what it would have been like or would would mm-hmm. be like even if i did um but does god know what it's like for god to eat a chicago style hot dog um okay so that raises an interesting question um so when i um well i'm working on this chapter so it's not finished but sure. when i when i think about of um, states possible for a certain being, they all seem to be ruled out as objects of God's omnisubjectivity. So um, uh, let's see, how, how do I want to say this? Um, if you take all the creatures in the world, 
Um, each one has a nature that limits what subjective states are possible for. Yeah. So, um, like, I'm I'm going to assume that a um, skunk cannot um, understand the Pythagorean theorem. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe they can. But I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's certain states they just couldn't have. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't an, any answer to the question, what would it be like for a skunk to tell itself the Pythagorean theorem and be convinced by it or something yeah. like that? Um, and um, there are probably many, many, maybe an infinite number of subjective states that no human could possibly have and still be human. Mm -hmm. So there wouldn't be any answer to the question, what would it be like if you had this state that only creatures and some other part of the universe who aren't human have? Right. Yeah, there wouldn't be any answer to that. So similarly, there might not be any answer to the question, what would it be like for God to eat a Chicago-style hot dog if eating a Chicago-style hot dog is something God couldn't do. Like a, that state is not a state that would be possible for God. Yeah. Now, of course, you can change things a bit if you add the doctrine of the incarnation right. to omnisubjectivity and say, well, if God becomes incarnate, which, you know, he did, yeah. then there are lots of states um, that would be impossible for God to have, but which now Jesus had, and so you could you understand my line of reasoning. Yeah. Something that would be impossible could become possible with incarnation. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Does it even make sense to think of God being incarnated as every possible subjective creature? I mean, I don't know. I mean, right. this, yeah. So I don't know how to. You know, this this begins to get too hard to answer sure. because you have to you have to tax the imagination pretty far. Yeah. But. A simple answer would be there's no just to say there's no such thing as what it would be like for do God to eat a hot dog. Yeah. And if there is no such thing, then there's just nothing for God to know. Yeah. I mean, and there's no, nothing. And no problem for omniscience. For omniscience. Yeah. 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 So so uh, I asked it because it is silly, but it also brings us uh, to the, the last question I wanted to ask you about. Um, so so there is some counterfactual knowledge that that God can know through. Uh, in incarnation in in Christ, um, but then when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, I, I believe you've said be, before that there's something it's like to be you know the Father. There's something it's like to be the Son. There's something it's like to be the Spirit. So mm -hmm. if the the Son is incarnate, you know, truly God, truly man, but he's qua his human nature, he's experiencing the deliciousness of eating a Chicago Chicago style hot dog, which everyone mm -hmm. should experience sometime mm -hmm. in their life. Um, how does God the Father uh, know that, uh, that experience? Does he know that through like a, a mental sharing with the son or is there yeah. a, a fourth thing uh, above and beyond that is right. Okay. Like so good. That's a really good question. Okay. So I am going to write a chapter, which I haven't done yet. Um, that will include thoughts and speculations about the Trinity, mm -hmm. um, and the incarnation. So, um, I want to propose that even though there's one God with one divine essence, um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always united in, in intellect and will. Mm -hmm. Their subjectivities are different. Okay. So 
what it's like to be the father is different than what it's like to be the son and what it's like to be the Holy Spirit. So there's three different subjectivities. But I also think that each person of the Trinity is omnisubjective of the other two persons of the Trinity. Okay. So the father knows or grasps what it's like to be the son. The son grasps what it's like to be the father. And then the same with the Holy Spirit. So um, their subjectivities are distinct, but because they're omnisubjective of each other, they grasp what it's like to be each other. Mm -hmm. So they have the most perfect unity possible for persons while the persons are still distinct. Okay. And that's as far as I've gotten in my thoughts. I don't really have any defense exactly, except that in my other work, uh, in the, well, in the, well, let's see, in, in some of my earlier papers and then in the book that, that just came out, the two greatest ideas, Mm -hmm. I talk about the connection between subjectivity and personhood. And, um, because I think that, um, what we mean by a self, the possessor of subjectivity is the inside of a person. Yeah. And, so if a person has an inside that's different from every other person's inside, then that means the persons of the Trinity have distinct insides, you know, distinct selves with distinct subjective states. And that, so my, my thinking about the Trinity is partly connected to my thinking about what the self is and what a person is and how they're connected and how they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, from other work. But as I said, this is about as far as I go. I don't haven't, you know, I welcome any suggestions, but I don't have any, um, you know, any, anything, you know, more to say about it than what I've already said. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Be uh, in, in your previous works, you've used like Goldman's homologous and Oxley's uh, congruent emotions in order to have a distinction between, a having a dual uh, perspective and and B having their own perspective, uh, I think that that could be helpful here as well when it comes to the uh, ad intro. Oh, okay. Trinitarian type yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that that could be one way. And just uh, just final uh, speculative question: There's something it's like to be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Is there something it's like to be God? Or it, it's- yeah, I don't know what to say. Okay. Um, I, I I don't know. Um, here's a problem. When I talk about omnisubjectivity, the entire book and previous papers um, talks about God having the attribute of omnisubjectivity. Right. So um, you might say, okay, so the father grasps your pain in your foot. The son grasps your pain in the foot. The Holy Spirit grasps your pain in the foot. It makes it, makes it sound like there's three grasps Grasp. going yeah, on grasping. i'm yeah. not sure i mean that's not the way i originally thought of it i just right. i mean i'm not sure how to answer that question um yeah so um but but i do want to say this much that if god is omnisubjective god has to have subjectivity himself mm-hmm. only a being with subjectivity can grasp subjectivity yeah so there would have to be something that's like to be God um, 
in order for God to be the kind of being that can grasp other beings that have subjectivity. Okay. Um, you know, there is one other argument for subject omnisubjectivity that I didn't mention that's, um, I don't know if it's a separate argument or if it's connected with the omniscience argument. Um, the idea of Aquinas that God, um, as the creator, has to grasp everything in the creation. That is, God is the first cause mm-hmm. of everything going on in the creation. So that includes the particulars of everything going on in the creation and the particulars of every state that you're in or anybody else is in. So um, uh, that God's grasp of it is entailed by the fact that God is is in fact the first cause of it. Yeah, yeah. So that, um, so it's not only that cognitive perfection would seem to require that God knows everything going on in your head, but that being the cause of everything going on in your head, the ultimate first cause would seem to require that God know what's going on in your head. Um, Yeah. yeah. I I really like that one. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Hugh McCann's uh, understanding. And he goes in for an authorial analogy uh, that God's like an author. And that uh, just briefly mentioned earlier, but, Mm. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser does that as well as a, a lot of people, C.S. Lewis. And um, but if if God's the author of the story, then He could know what it's like for His characters because He authored it. Then there's there's some problems. We get into free will and determinism and compatibilism yeah. and such. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it does seem like God would have to sort of get what's going on in yeah. His creation. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. I like you mentioned, you know, reading a book, and so. It gets, got the juices flowing. I'm I'm really excited for for your work coming out here. Uh, excited for you to to finish up that chapter on the the Trinity as well. I've I've really benefited from uh, your other work as well, but but this one has been most influential for me. So I'm I'm really have, uh, so um, you might be ready to to stop. I'm not sure, but you mm-hmm. didn't uh, bring up the objections. You were talking about the creepiness. Oh objection yeah, sure. Before. I totally did. You yeah, want, totally did you want to do that? Yeah, let's do that. If you have some, I was wanted to respect your time, but yeah. if you have some time to, to talk about creepy, uh, the yeah, uh, yeah. RT so, um, I've heard this before. <laughs> I've heard, but could you say something about what the creepiness objection is? Yeah. So the way I take it is that um, there's a lot of creepy states. Um, Hitler um, being excited to, you know, gas uh, Jews and mm-hmm. uh, a, a rapist, or you know, all sorts of different mental states, different you know, qualia states of gross things mm-hmm. right it seems like um uh we don't want to ascribe those to god we don't want to say that like god knows what it's like to do horrendous uh act x because i don't want to even go into all the gross stuff that you could say yeah okay so um i've never been much worried by this objection even though i've heard it um uh, several times but it um it makes it look like God would somehow be contaminated by his own creation if he was too close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like, um, you know, something has to be hidden from God because, you know, he's so holy. We wouldn't want him to know what's going on in the creation in all details. Yeah. And that 
Well, I mean, it's, I don't know what to say except, well, it does go on and he needs to know about it. (laughs) So um, I, I don't, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I guess it's partly what you might call the holiness objection that Mm -hmm. somehow God has to be above it. Um, Or maybe if, uh, maybe um, if you motivate it and said, look, there's other models of omniscience, like the propositional model that God just knows the propositions about it. So in this case, God would just know the proposition that this person was murdered horribly by this person. And that might not affect his, his blessedness or his, you know, ad intra uh, holiness and blessedness in the same way that like viewing it or perceiving it on that model or, or actively empathizing with both the victim and the perpetrator all at once. Um, that's, I think maybe yeah, that but might you, be. the thing is, I mean, I'm sure we all have seen movies with horrible characters portrayed. Yeah. And if the actor's really good, we can kind of see what, you know, how they're feeling, mm-hmm. even though the feeling is disgusting, we kind yeah. of get what they're feeling. And it's hard for me to see that that contaminates us or mm-hmm. in any way, uh, impinges on our own moral worth yeah. because we sort of see, I see now why Hitler was the way he was or something. You know, you don't really, um, I mean, you could see through the eyes of a rapist and that wouldn't in any way make you a rapist or even right. make you more likely to be a rapist. Right. Um, it's just, you're kind of getting what's going on and what it's like to be, this person. And so if it doesn't contaminate you, it's hard for me to see how it could contaminate God. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess I would just like to hear what, you know, a little more, cause it doesn't bother me very much. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. So um, I think some, someone might bring up like a, a really gruesome TV show and, and say, yeah, Christians shouldn't watch this show or, or really, uh, provocative tv show or something like law and order svu i I can't watch because it really just messes with me a lot but i'm also not a perfect being perfect in moral character yeah right right like like god is um right that's a good point yeah because so we could be contaminated by you know yeah corrupted by watching certain things but it's very hard god's not going to be corrupted yeah so um i think you brought up this distinction between um like God grasping emotions versus God like have having that emotion. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken there, but yeah, and that's the problem though is how do you you we want to well panentheist somehow God grasps this um, rapist or terrorist emotion without actually having the emotion himself. Yeah. And that actually is the problem is how to be, how can God be in your head without being you can, can really intimately grasp what it's like to be you, but yet God isn't you. Mm -hmm. Um, And the models are not perfect. Empathy, the empathy model, the perceptual model are not perfect. The panentheist model has lots of problems just because panentheism has problems, but it's not, but it may do a better job of actually um, answering the question, what's, you know, let's see, how do I want to say it? 
um, in a sense, God isn't you, but in a sense, God is you, or you are part of God. So that solves the problem of how um, um, God can be in your head. Um, it does, though, let me, let's think this through, though. Yeah. It does look like on the Panentheus model, God does feel rage, hate, and so on. Yeah. It looks like God actually does feel those feelings, but God feels them only as a part, you know, like it's in the, it's in the terrorist or it's in the rapist. It's in this person's mind. And since the that person's mind is in God, then God in a sense does feel it, Mm -hmm. but only, you know, in this one part, I mean, it's not like God himself as God feels hate. He doesn't, but the hate is sort of in this one part of God that's this person's mind, this terrorist's mind. Yeah. Um, and then you may not want to say that either. I don't know. But it's not as bad as it sounds as if you see, you know, it's not as if God himself becomes a hateful person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's really this – is, this has been super fun. Um yeah, I think we covered. I think we covered most of it now. Um, yeah, and, and I think there is there is biblical support for it. And uh, you brought up you, you bring up Psalms um, like one thirty nine mm-hmm. and, and and search me, God. And, and we do this in our Christian lives. We ask God to search us. We ask God like to be omni subject uh, subjective. So I really like it. It's been really influential in my life. And uh, so I, I really appreciate your work on this. And I'm so glad that you're writing a whole book on it. I'm really looking forward to that. Good. I am too. <laughs> I want to yeah. see what it looks like when I get done. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So it hasn't been very long since uh, you were on the London Lyceum. But but then Jordan asked you if you had a website or anything like that where people can find your work. Uh I, it hasn't been that long, so we haven't given you a lot of time. Is there somewhere where, where people can find Oh, you? I did update. Um, okay. Let's see. I did update my website. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was done in my department, so I it, it should be on the OU Philosophy Department's website under faculty, under okay. people. Awesome. Um, and I think my CV is attached there, too. Okay. So they should be updated, but, um, well... I think they are. Okay. <laughs> I hope awesome. they are. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, put a link. And then there's references also. I'm, I mentioned the book that I just published with Princeton University Press, The Two Greatest Ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that book uh, is, well, it's not about religion. It's it's a whole story of the history of ideas told my way. <laughs> but in a sense, it connects with omnisubjectivity because what I conclude at the end of the book is the need for a revolution in the study of subjectivity mm. and inner subjectivity yeah. where omnisubjectivity would be the perfection of inner subjectivity. Mm. So, um, I mean, I don't describe omnisubjectivity in that book at all, yeah. but it, I have been thinking about subjectivity as, uh, and its importance in both philosophy and religion. That's awesome. So, uh, to give everyone a little bit of taste of that. So is inner subjectivity, is that like a, that's something that, that we can experience that we can. Yeah, sure. We can exchange subjective states. So it's like empathy only broadened to, you know, all your subjective states. I mean, we think that we can uh, exchange our subjective states with other people 
And when I talked about empathy, we discussed that, you know, a little bit. Um, But I think that, um, you know, we've had, uh, well, what I say in the book is we've had, we had uh, thousands of years um, centered on the idea that we first grasp the universe as a whole, and then we grasp our own mind's place in it. Mm. And then starting in the early modern period, we started an era where um, we the thinking was that we first grasp our own minds and then figure out what the universe outside of us is like mm. by putting together the contents of our minds in a certain way. So first we thought, you know, we first grasp the universe and then our minds. And then we thought, okay, no, we first grasp our minds and then the universe. And what I suggest is we, we are going to be stuck with the problem of not understanding how the subjective world and the objective world go together Mm. until we have done much further work on subjectivity and inner subjectivity. Um, And that it would be fabulous if there was a revolution in the study of inner subjectivity, because that might help us in a lot of our theoretical problems and even our practical problems of figuring out how to get along with other people. I think that, yeah, I think that would be fabulous. So that's what, I hope for. Awesome. Well, um, so everyone go, go check out that book. It's the two greatest ideas and look, uh, be looking out for uh, omnisubjectivity uh, as, as Dr. Zegzebski finishes that. Uh, that's going to have to do it for us for now, folks. But uh, Lord willing, we can have her back on. We can talk even more uh, amazing ideas, maybe the two greatest ideas. Uh, again, if you guys like this pod, uh, this episode, please give it a like, uh, leave us some comments. And then if you want to support the podcast, you can find a link to my Patreon in the description. Please support us that way. And also my sponsor, Biblios Clothing Company, where you can get uh, 10% off if you follow the link in the description. That's all for now, folks. And as always, all glory to God. Hold up. 